Hello, this is Russ Shaw with ASI247.org. The following was recorded at AC3 Allen Creek Community Church in Marysville, Washington. AC3.org is a website. Here is Dan Hazen with Desperate Sexuality. Well, I'm going to take the rest of the time we have here this morning and I'm going to break it into two distinct pieces. And I'm going to give you the second part first because I want to capitalize on the Brooks' story that hopefully is still ringing in your ears. And this part is about how to deal with the fallout when a sexual crisis hits your marriage. You heard James and Celia talk about a few principles and how that those principles made a difference in bringing them back from the edge. These principles come straight out of the Bible, and I want to look at them in a little more detail. The first principle is from the point of view of the one who committed the offense. Okay, And this principle uh, is embracing brokenness. Now, when you came in in your program, you had a little insert, a little flyer, and you'll see there's just a brief outline in there of these two principles that we'll be covering. And I wanted to put those in there so that you can take them home with you, okay? so that you can keep them. You can follow along with that if you want right now. This first principle, from the point of view of the offender, is embracing brokenness. And we see a marvelous example of this in Scripture in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells the following story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, that means a religious practitioner. The other, a tax man, one of the most hated people in Jesus' culture. The Pharisee posed and prayed like this, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week, and I tithe on all my income. Meanwhile, the tax man, slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Jesus commented, this tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. The Bible confirms what we know by experience and common sense. People don't like to be wrong. But this is the most critical thing to bear in mind once the feathers are out of the pillow and you're dealing with sexual immorality in your marriage. There is wrongness. And somebody has got to own it. So, if you're the offender and you really want to slow down the healing process, you want to bring it to a grinding halt and cause even more pain, I'm going to give you a list of things that you should do. Okay? Number one, minimize. Make the other person believe that what happened really was no big deal. Spin it. Make it sound like it was less your fault than it really was. Leave out details that might make you look more guilty than you're willing to look. Number two, blame. For every wrong action you took, point out the reason for it. It's best if your spouse is the one who drove you to it. Number three, anger. Make sure you give your discomfort about being wrong full expression. Make sure each conversation is as tense as possible. It will ensure that your spouse gets the idea that you're not really sorry. Number four, accuse. When it gets really tense, find a way to turn the attention from your offense 
by pointing out the others. Being judgmental and self-righteous are the favorites, usually. But there are also the charges of being oversensitive, paranoid, needy, prudish, codependent, and picky. Those will work, too. All right, let me get my tongue out of my cheek, and let's move to the point of view of the one who is offended. Okay? What's the big principle here? And James spoke about this in detail. The principle is feelings follow actions. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. Colossians chapter 3 says that we should clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Remember those five. We're to bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances we have. We're to forgive as the Lord forgave us. You notice there's not one word in there about justice, revenge, punishment, or anger. All of these are feelings you might have, but you must choose to act in forgiveness. Your feelings do not have to run the show. If you chose to dwell on these things from Scripture, your feelings will catch up with them in time. Let's look at these five things. Number one, compassion. Guess what? The other person is hurt too. They may not always act like it, but this is no picnic for the offender. Number two is kindness. This means that you continue the relationship even through the roughest times. You don't stop touching. You don't stop saying I love you. You don't stop giving gifts and kisses and time. You don't get to do any punishment. That's not your job. Number three is humility. Thoughts about what they deserve and the consequences of their actions can usually be quickly silenced when you honestly ask yourself what you deserve. That shuts me up most of the time anyway. Number number four, gentleness. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to get on the path to healing? Do Do you want this thing fixed? then don't respond with hostility and anger and further accusations and just vomit all your pain in a fit of rage when your spouse does tell you the truth. They're just going to stop telling you the truth after a while if that's how you treat them. Number five is patience. This is going to take longer than you want it to. I'm learning that it takes some time for the truth to come out under the best of circumstances. And even though it's the right thing to do, people are reluctant to make complete confession in one sitting. They may not get it all right away. Hang in there. All right, now, so far in this talk, I've made a distinction between offender and offended. And at certain points in the journey, especially after someone has crossed a physical boundary, it's appropriate to think in those terms at least for a while, and always, always, always in the context of healing the marriage, never in the context of breaking it up. But in every desperate household, there was a time before that physical boundary was crossed. You heard Celia describe that vividly. At first blush, we might think that a marriage in which neither spouse has ever touched someone else is pure, it's clean. There are no offenders because there's been no offense. We've never had to deal with sexual immorality in our marriage. I'm sorry, but let me be blunt. That's not innocent. That's ignorant. Well, let me be a little more diplomatic. It's naive. 
Every individual in this room who has been through puberty has a little teeny motor right here in your guts. It sits somewhere between your heart and your stomach. It's a little motor. We all know what it feels like when it's running. It's, it's kind of like hunger, a, a yearning. Maybe even close to nausea, but it's actually quite pleasant. It's like nervous stomach, but deeper, lower. It can really get revved up sometimes. It almost takes over, distracting you from everything else, from what's really going on. When it really gets rocking, your heart starts to race. Your skin flushes. Your breathing gets labored. And you feel more alive and tingly and aware than at almost any time. Women have it. Men have it. Married people, single people, divorced. We've all got one. Sometimes it's still, but rarely. We can forget that it's there for periods of time, ignore it, pretend that it doesn't sit there and whirr. But it doesn't change the fact that it's there. Sometimes we might think it's broken, but then suddenly out of nowhere, it springs to life again. When this happens, it might be a happy moment. When you feel life surge back into your existence, it might be a thrill. It might even be a spiritual experience. Or it can be disquieting. An out-of-control feeling that you didn't want, that you didn't ask for. A feeling that scares you, shames you, and it intimidates you. It's your sexuality. It's powerful. It's potent. It's God-ordained. It's beautiful. And it is very, very dangerous. This little motor is responsible for the conception of every human child, every love poem, rock ballad, sonnet, and romance novel. It's responsible for murder, war, divorce, sexual abuse, pornography, and Barry Manilow records. It's a power so great, it could only be used for good or evil. And when our sexuality goes wrong, it can create a desperate household. Let me give you some statistics. Found this on a website called divorcemag.com. That's right, an online magazine for divorce. The number one cause listed by women of the breakup of their marriage, infidelity. The number one cause listed by men for the failure of their marriage? Infidelity. The percentage of women who will, without question, upon finding out that their husband has had an affair, will leave that marriage? No questions. Had an affair over. 43%. No discussion. It's done. Same question to men? 47% of them out the door. No discussion. Percentage of women who would say, even in an affair, I will choose to stay? 2%. Percentage of men who said, I will stay, even if there was infidelity? 9%. That's it. But here's the thing. These statistics probably represent how people have felt forever, in every culture, at every time. I don't think these stats are anything new. Now, perhaps the gross numbers are higher, and that's certainly desperate. But why do things seem to be more out of control these days when it comes to the level of desperation in our marriages? Well, I think there are two reasons. 
And the first one is ambiguity. And that simply means being open to or having several possible meanings or interpretations for something. It's ambiguous. Could be this, could be that. Might be something in the middle. I'm not sure. Maybe this, maybe that. It's ambiguous. Yeah. Ambiguity. And we Americans are of two minds. I call us prudish perverts. We can't get enough skin, kinky sex, and tabloid lechery. Yet when someone hurts us with sex, we become Puritans all over again. We see sexual sins in an entirely different category than other sins. While the Bible does draw some distinctions about sex sins, the intent was not to make it worse than other categories. Jesus talked about it in the same breath with murder. He was not trying to reduce its importance or isolate it as something particularly nasty. He was trying to get us to see it in the same way we should see all sin. Dead serious and rooted in our hearts. That was the context. I think we need to wake up to the gravity of it. I think we consider watching a couple copulate on TV or posting some tantalizing pics on MySpace as something other than misdirected sexual energy. Oh, it's playful. It's it's relevant. It's a little dangerous. It's ambiguous. We don't see lifting a few pencils from the office as stealing. We don't see leaving our alimony payments off our tax returns as cheating. And we don't see chasing a little thrill by flirting as a violation of our marriage. Well, it's not true. It made your motor spin, didn't it? When she told you, man, you look, you look great in that shirt, and she let her eyes do that thing up and down your body, that made your motor spin big time, didn't it? Don't be ambiguous. That gave you a sexual thrill. You put that special little dress on and you planned out how you were going to get close enough to him so that he would see you. And when you thought about doing it, it made your motor spin. Don't blur it with talk of self-esteem and create a bunch of ambiguity. You're receiving a sexual thrill. At this point, if you're thinking, geez, Hazen, what a prude, lighten up. (laughs) Stuff like this is harmless. Okay, then I just say, fine. If it's harmless, why don't you just go tell your spouse about it then? Be upfront with it if it's harmless. Ladies, why not just step out of the bathroom with your power lipstick on and those shoes? You know the shoes. You know, and your hair done in that certain way. And just go ask your husband. You know, I'm thinking this will get Bill in accounting to notice me. What do you think? Just say it if it's harmless. Your response to me right, might be rightly indignant. Well, fine, but I don't want to have sex with the man. I'm just trying to look attractive. Right. To make your motor spin. That's what you're doing. You've got to get close enough to the edge in order to make the motor spin. These little activities are ambiguous. Not really sinful, but certainly not anything you'd teach your teenage daughter to do either. If it's really no big deal, let your husband know how the romance novels make you feel. What it's like when you receive an unexpected text message from him, whoever him is. See how your husband reacts when you let him see your heart and not just your behavior. 
It's really no big deal. Bookmark your favorite websites, guys. Let your wives see them. Let her see the pictures and tell her what you were thinking about. Tell her why it makes you feel the way it does. Men, if it's no big deal, why not just say out loud what you're thinking while you're on the treadmill at the Y? Why keep those thoughts to yourself if there's no power in them? Wow, I, I remember when my wife looked like that. I wonder if she'd ever consider someone like me. How would her hair look if it were let down? Spread out all over my bed. Go ahead. Why not say it? Oh, come on, Hazen. I can't help some of those thoughts. It's not like I'd act on them. Right. But you don't put much effort into forcing them out of your mind either. Why? Because they make your motor spin. You're willing to let them remain ambiguous. Not pure enough to say out loud, but certainly not bad enough to stop them. And that's the problem. They steal your heart away from your true love. You drop a little innuendo. So subtle that she might not get it. You watch for a reaction and your motor begins to spin. Then you see it, a raised eyebrow. And a smile that is not quite sly, but you know he got the point. There was no sex, but what do you call that little transaction I just described? Maybe your motor really doesn't get spinning at first until you find a way to get someone else's motor spinning. Then there's the payoff. You'd never really consider having sex with them right. But what just happened? You aroused them, and when you succeeded in doing that, you were aroused. What do we call that? Maybe you didn't ask for it at all. Maybe you were bebopping along, happily married, truly, thinking about nothing but baseball and Girl Scout cookies, when it reached out and it grabbed you. You didn't seek it out, nobody made a pass at you, but she smiled just so. The web page accidentally popped up. His hand just grazed your back. And it happened. So you let it come. You let it wash over you. You feel that motor start to spin. The other doesn't even know it. But it feels good. What do you call that? My friend calls it chasing shadows. You don't stop to think if it could be wrong because nothing has really happened outside your head and your heart. But now your motor is worrying and that really feels good. Women, you feel attractive, powerful. Men, you feel young again like you've still got it, like you matter. Smiles, hugs, inside jokes, innuendo, flattery, not a single one of them on their own constitutes a sexual sin. Having a favorite actor or actress that you think is hot. Whispering about who you think is good looking. Making an effort to get near someone who you find attractive. Well, you know what? Jesus removed all the ambiguity about this kind of thing. Wiped it off because he pointed right at your heart. You see, if you walk out of here with only one thing on your mind today, I hope it will be this. You are not immune. You are not innocent. Each and every one of us, including me, 
is guilty of sexual immorality. Let's cut to the chase. Jesus sets the standard in Matthew chapter 5, where he said, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in with her in his heart. Now I'm sure that at any given moment, you're not really interested in seeing Bill from accounting naked. And I'm sure that if you're given the opportunity, you'd say no to a sexual proposition from the lady at the Y. Okay, alright, I get it. But the point Jesus was making isn't about which body parts touch. It's about that little motor. It's, it's, it's about robbing something from your spouse's heart and robbing from God. It's about poaching things that don't belong to you. You're getting something from another that your spouse should have the honor of giving you. You're breaking their heart by not sharing your own. Don't, don't you truly want your spouse to make your motor spin wildly? Isn't it your heart's desire to throw off all your inhibitions and be totally free with the person that you chose? To feel the thrill and the excitement and the unconditional love and the security and the commitment. then why bleed off all that energy into some mental, verbal, visual activity that robs both of you of your sexual potential? And yes, this is very true. It sets you up to actually follow through on all that subtle stuff someday. It happens. It happens. Listen to me, Alan Creek. There has never been an affair that just happened. Not once. The pump had been primed. Maybe not with the person you end up in bed with, but the stage had been set with dozens or hundreds or thousands of little ambiguous activities that made the next one that much easier and the one before it not good enough anymore. For every affair that actually comes into bloom, there was a period of time when the soil was tilled, the seeds were planted, fertilizer was spread, and it was watered and tended, it was nurtured, with a bunch of little things that we all just wink at and think they're playful. If we want our households to be less desperate, let's start by being less ambiguous about these things. Affairs start in the heart. We heard it in the song earlier. Oh, faithless heart, be far away from me, playing games inside my head that no one else can see. Don't be ambiguous about how you receive sexual stimulation anymore. God has given you a partner, married people. Put all your energy into making that one sexual relationship all that it can be in the bedroom, but even more importantly, before the bedroom. In your heart and in your mind. Second thing that contributes to our desperate households. We have ambiguity. Now we have apathy. Apathy. We just learned that there is no such thing as harmless flirting. Yet too many of us have given up on being romantically and sexually fulfilled in marriage, so we've resigned ourselves to find it elsewhere. Or simply just let it die. Apathy is the word to you potential victims of an affair out there today. You're watching your spouse move away from you. You're watching all the behavior I just described going on all the time, and you're saying to yourself, well, I don't want to interfere. I 
I don't want to come off looking insecure or codependent. I might drive them away. I don't want to be a prude. Your spouse might even accuse you of these things. But odds are, you're not crazy. Where there's smoke, there's always fire. Maybe physical boundaries have, haven't been crossed. But remember, that's just acting out on what's already going on inside us. Don't ignore that. Be vigilant about protecting your marriage bed. It's under attack all the time. Don't sit back and surrender to the cultural flood of permissiveness and self-centeredness. You have a union to protect, so speak up. Maybe those of you who tend to worry about this stuff too much, well, maybe you can learn to relax a little now that we're all on the level playing field. Maybe we won't have to wonder what's on the other's mind all the time because we've kind of agreed to be honest about it because what's on their mind is really pretty much what's on your mind. We're all in this together. Some of you may really be resisting that thought right now. Hey, I have never thought about anyone else. I never flirt or look at pornography. I have good boundaries. Well, all I can say is, listen to that motor. If it ever spins without your spouse as the cause, well, now you know what your spouse experiences. So maybe we can just talk as equals again. Now, there's real danger in everything I've just said here. So listen closely. I don't think it's wise to share every single thought that goes through your head or even every behavior with your spouse in the name of full disclosure. You can't lie. And if you have been lying, you've got to confess at some point. But it would just cause more harm than good to fill out a daily report of every unclean thought you have during a day. No, you go to God and to a trusted friend, a pastor or a counselor with that stuff and get it worked out. But for God's sake, for your marriage's sake, get it worked out. Listen, friends, this is not about declaring sexual impulses as evil and working to eliminate all of them. It's about not trying to cover them up with a bunch of cultural permissions and excuses. It's about looking at them honestly, acknowledging that God gave us these little motors, and because we live in a fallen world, they're going to get spun by the wrong thing every so often. Damage is going to occur, and we've got to deal with it. And we deal with it with brokenness when we're the offender, and we deal with it with forgiveness when we're the offended. It happens to every one of us. It's about deciding what you're going to do about it when it does happen. Will you name it honestly? Will you treat it with the respect it's due? See the potential in it and handle it carefully. It's dangerous. It's not a game. Will you call it what it is and in doing so remove its power? Will you redirect the not-so-innocent impulse in the direction of your spouse and then experience the blessing of that little mower whirring like mad but God's way? Look, it is not my goal to start a fight in your house today. I am not trying to make the ride home as awkward as possible. My goal is to get each married person in this room to see that there is an enemy of your marriage and it's lurking right under your nose. Right here. 
Our households are desperate because we've got our sexual motors wired backwards and few of us are willing to talk openly about it until the horses have already left the barn. And then we learned this already. After that, less than 10% of us are willing to work at it. Why will we talk about it then? And not now. If you do have a fight about this stuff, and I'm not certainly advocating it, but I am saying it's better than the alternative. Go ahead. Fight about it. But you don't have to even fight. Because the biblical principles we covered earlier can be applied to your talk before the fight breaks out. I promise you, whether God is leading you to a confession or a quiet internal change in heart, if you adopt and embrace the attitude of brokenness that the tax collector in Luke 18 did, it will go well with you. And I promise you, no matter what you might hear, no matter if your suspicions are confirmed or not, if you will adopt the forgiving attitude like Christ in Colossians chapter 3, it will go well with you. And ironically, in the warm glow of brokenness and forgiveness, the very desire for intimacy that may have led your faithless heart astray in the first place is now the desire that can finally be met in the person that God has given you. The way out is the way back in. And your longing to truly have the heart of the one who wandered can at last be realized. To the offender and to the offended, I say this. Life does not lie in the direction of secrecy or of justice. It lies in the direction of truth and forgiveness. Just God's design. For a faithful heart. Let's pray. Oh, to the great faithful heart of the universe, I pray. To the one who has never had an impulse other than a holy loving one. To our model. To the one whom we are constantly drawn. To the one whose image we bear. I ask that you would help each and every one of us, no matter where we are in our spiritual journeys, to embrace this idea that our hearts can be more like yours. That we can choose the truth and that's going to mean brokenness for every single one of us. And in our brokenness, in our honesty, that means that we're going to have to forgive. Forgive as God has forgiven us. As you have forgiven us, God. I pray for the courage and the wisdom for each person in this room to step up to embrace these principles to alleviate some desperation from the marriages here so that we may be a light so that our children and generations to come could benefit from the sound marriage that we build here so that our schools, our neighborhoods our churches, our county, our state, our country our species could benefit from people who live out your principles. Oh God, I pray that you give us all that we need to do just that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Like a rock that falls into a pool It leaves the rain that grounds What kind of legacy Will I leave behind That leads to
Check them out at bohmusic.com. 